Well, good morning. morning. Great to see you all this morning. What a wonderful time of worship it's already been. Not even sure why I'm standing up here. If you have your Bible with you, I invite you to uh, open up with me to Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And if you don't have a Bible with you, there's one provided for you right there in the back of the pew in front of you. It's the shorter dark brown book that you see there, and you'll find this passage on page 770 or 810, depending on which printing of that you have. And by the way, if you don't own a Bible, then uh, I would just invite you to open that one to page 770 and then keep it and take it home with you and read page 771 and 772 and the rest of them after that and bring it back next week, uh, our gift to you. Um, This is our second week in our series through the book of Acts, and so if you weren't here last week and are just joining us, you're you're right on time. You just have one makeup assignment that you have to do, and you can still get full credit for the class. But uh, our second week in this series through the book of Acts, as Matt said, we're calling the series Beyond. We're interested in seeing um, and expecting to see, as we look in the book of Acts, a church that lives beyond Sunday, beyond the walls, and beyond the borders. In fact, I'll mention that next week, we have the special privilege of hearing from a a Christian worker who uh, serves overseas and is on mission all the time. As we talk about trying to uh, re-up as a missional church in post-Christian America, uh, we'll, we'll get to hear from somebody who lives on mission in a part of the world that is not in any sense Christian. It's not post-Christian. Maybe, by the grace of God, it's pre-Christian. But anyway, uh, that's coming next week, and then um, we'll, be, we'll resume in Acts chapter 2 the following week. I just wanted to uh, mention that. But we're, we're expecting to see what it looks like for a church to live Beyond, and uh, it's sort of like watching watching game tape here. Okay, so we're gonna we're gonna observe as we go through the book of the Acts what the church did, the acts of the apostles or the acts of the risen Lord Jesus through the church by the power of the Holy Spirit. What it looked like for a church to live on mission, and uh, the the this morning's message is is titled "While You're Waiting." As I mentioned last week, as we go through the book of Acts, I'm just going to preach what's there in the text. Uh, Not every verse by any stretch of the imagination, but just going to preach what's there. But we're interested in looking particularly at that church on mission. Uh, But this morning's message is titled, While You're Waiting. And anyone with an active life of faith with the Lord spends some time waiting on God. I don't have any doubt in my mind that uh, numbers of you this morning sitting here today are in a period of waiting on God. In some respect, where it is, we're, we're, we've, we've prayed about something that all we can do is pray. There are circumstances we can't change. We have, there's nothing we can do. We're, we're, we're urging uh, God to act on our behalf and and then we wait until he does. It's, again, that's a, that's a common experience we share uh, as people who walk with God. But, but, but because it's God we, we're waiting for, 
we wait with expectancy, right? Because, because he is faithful to come through. He can't, he can't do anything other than keep his promises. He can't lie, and he can't fail, and he can't change. So we wait with expectancy, but we wait nonetheless. And, you know, really, the, the, the sort of concept or theme of waiting runs throughout the Scripture. Uh, you can find it just about in every uh, book we happen to see here. As Jesus had told the um, followers right after his resurrection to wait for the Holy Spirit, that they're in this short season of waiting with expectancy. So we see them modeling the kind of things that we want to live out in Acts chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And let's look there together now. And I'm going to ask you to stand in honor of the reading of God's Word. Acts 1, beginning in verse 12. Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer, together with the women and Mary the mother of Jesus and his brothers. In those days, Peter stood up among the brothers, the company of persons was in all about 120, and said, Brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Now this man bought a field with the reward of his wickedness, and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle, and all his bowels gushed out. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so that the field was called in their own language, Akeldama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Verse 21, So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us. One of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. And they put forward two, Joseph called Barsabbas, who was also called Justice, and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who know the hearts of all, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots for them, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the 11 apostles. Let's pray together. Well, Father, as always, we count it a privilege to come together, to just assemble together as believers, to worship you, and we thank you, Lord, that you're present um, always, when we join together, we thank you, Lord, that we um, sense you're doing something among us today. We're just so grateful that that's true. But we thank you now, Lord, that we can open the word and hear you speak to us through it. We believe you've revealed every 
little jot and tittle of what's written here. Every word of it is an utterance from you, inspired by your spirit, and that it's profitable for our teaching and correction, for training, for reproof, that we may be made complete and prepared, equipped for every good work you've called us to. And so, Lord, we read even now with expectancy that you have something to say to us in the scriptures. Lord, would you move me out of the way and even just using my voice say what it is we need to hear as your people today. And so we ask simply that you would speak, O Lord, your word by your spirit through your servant to your people for your glory and for our good. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Um, last week's message was from verses 1 through 11 of chapter 1, and we read that Jesus spent time with the believers in a 40-day period following his resurrection, and he, he hung out with them. He, he ate fish with them, and he spent time teaching them things concerning the kingdom of God. And in Luke 24, which kind of overlaps with Acts chapter 1, in fact, you, you, you'll remember um, Acts is written by Luke. It's kind of book two of his story, okay? And so chapter 24, where Luke's gospel ends, sort of overlaps with the beginning of, of uh, chapter one of, of Acts. And Luke 24 says that Jesus opened the eyes of the believers to see and to understand how the writings of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms had been fulfilled in Christ. And then he told them, wait in Jerusalem until they had received the promise of the Holy Spirit. I, I might mention here that uh, there's plenty of reason they might not have wanted to wait in Jerusalem. Uh, they're, they're, most of them not from Jerusalem. They're Galileans. But also, Jesus just got executed in Jerusalem. And uh, it might be plenty inviting to just make their way on down the road. Uh, but he said to them to wait in Jerusalem until they received the promise of the Holy Spirit. In verse 8 of chapter 1, uh, in, in, in that verse, Jesus tells them they'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on them. And they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in the Judea and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And uh, we observe that, that that's really the verse that sums up the book of Acts. That's the theme verse, the thesis statement or whatever of the book of Acts. And really the whole book is outlined that way. And so we see the church in Jerusalem and then we see the church in Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth um, as the book concludes, actually from chapter 13 to uh, 28. So that was uh, sort of the synopsis of last week. And then as we just read, you know, they... After they had watched Jesus ascend into the air, they returned to Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away, which is a little under a mile, probably two-thirds of a mile away, to the upper room where they were staying. This may or may not have been the same upper room where the Last Supper was served. We, we don't know, um, and it doesn't really matter so much. A room, of, um, a room big enough to hold an assembly of 120 people. I don't know how comfortably, but that's how many were there, but in obedience to Jesus, 
they were going to wait for the Holy Spirit. And so these events transpired over the period of about a week. 40 days with Jesus and then the, um, the day of Pentecost would come when the Spirit was poured out. So, so in this period of about a week, they're waiting. And they model for us how to wait with a sense of expectancy and they model it really in three ways. They, they engaged in continual unified prayer. They rested in the sovereign plan of God and then they practiced wise decision-making. Those are the three things we want to observe in this text today. First of all, they engaged in continual unified prayer. Look in verse 14, where it says, All these, with one accord, were devoting themselves to prayer. Shared adversity has a way of bringing people together. Of course, those who are unwilling to accept their share of adversity tend to scatter. And such was the case here. Thousands had gone out to hear Jesus teach. Thousands had been fed when he multiplied the fishes and the loaves, right? You remember that story. Countless others sat under his teaching and watched him perform miracles. And when, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, crowds had greeted him and shouted, Hosanna! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. But by the end of the week, after Jesus had been seized and tried and taken to the cross, most of those who had cried, Hosanna, Hosanna, were nowhere to be found. Now, a month and a half later, only 120 believers were assembled in that room. Has that ever struck you before? Thousands that followed him, that rejoiced, loved seeing the miracles and all that kind of stuff. Now there's 120 of them left in that upper room. There, there were apparently more believers elsewhere. We read in 1 Corinthians 15 that uh, 500 people saw Jesus after the resurrection. These are probably people out in the region of Galilee. But regardless... The crowds had dwindled considerably. And, and this shouldn't be surprising, right? If, if everyone were naturally courageous, courage would not be considered a virtue. Now, cowardice is far more common to the human condition, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's not really natural so much that we would put a cause above ourselves or country above ourselves, that we would sacrifice ourselves uh, for any of those kinds of things, stand in the face of danger uh, for the sake of something else or higher. No, it's, it's much more natural to preserve oneself or one's self-interest. Cowardice, more common to the human condition. And likewise, the, the, the shallower one's convictions are, the easier it is to compromise them. I think often of a uh, conversation I had with a, a young man from Romania. This has been several years ago. He was over here um, actually to go to seminary, uh, but had, had grown up in Romania. And he said, um, you know, after the Iron Curtain came down in Eastern Europe and people were free to worship, 
the church got less healthy, not more healthy. The people showed up. <laughs> but they were the people you hadn't seen from while it cost them something to be a part of the church. We wouldn't probably expect it to be uh, any different in our own circumstances. It certainly wasn't any different here in uh, these early days of the church. People tend to scatter under pressure. But for those who remain together in the adversity, in the face of opposition, um, their bond is strengthened. Their bond with each other is strengthened by that shared adversity. And so these 120 believers are engaged in prayer that is unified. They are with each other. They've got each other's back. They don't have anything but each other. They are unified in their prayer. We also saw there, though, that prayer, their prayer was continual. And, and this comes across a little differently depending on which translation you're reading. Um, in the English Standard Version, which I'm reading, it says they were devoting themselves to prayer. You see, I think in, uh, maybe it's the NIV uses the word constantly uh, maybe the New American Standard continually. I don't remember. It's, it's, it's phrased differently in different English translations, but the idea here in the Greek is that there's, there's an ongoing action here. Their prayer. In other words, they didn't just say a prayer and then get out the cards or scrabble, you know, to, to, to kill time. And they didn't, you know, just um, have a few prayers periodically in between games of scrabble or something like that. But rather... Uh, while they waited, they were spending their time praying. Now, we might want to mention a couple of things here. Uh, on one hand, their prayers did not cause the Holy Spirit to come. Okay, Jesus had not conditioned the outpouring of the Holy Spirit on their, their prayers. He said, you will be baptized when the Holy Spirit uh, in the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. In other words, he's speaking in certain terms, he will come. On the other hand, uh, their prayers did do something. Uh, and they preceded the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Whether they, whether they caused that or not uh, is not so much the issue, but they did precede that outpouring as is Often, if not always the case, in the, in the case of revival, we find that when revival comes, people have been praying. But our, but our prayers do something. As 2 Chronicles 7.14 says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven, will forgive their sin and heal their land. And James 5.16 says, the effective prayer of a righteous man can accomplish much. Prayer is effective. It makes a difference. And perhaps it is most effective in changing us. Have you ever had the experience where you get down on your knees to pray that God will change the circumstances and before you get up, God has changed your perspective on the circumstances. Circumstances remain the same, but you're changed. Your heart's aligned with God and um, at peace with how the situation unfolds. Prayer often changes us and aligns us with him, aligns us with each other, as was the case here. It knit their hearts together more closely. 
and prepared them for what God was getting ready to do in their midst. There's power in unity. The scripture tells us, and there's power in prayer. Just imagine the power that we might wield as a local church if we came together in unified prayer and sustained it until we saw God move on our city. There's power in unified prayer while we wait for God. Number two, they not only engaged in unified, continual prayer, they rested in the sovereign plan of God. Verses 5 through 17 says Peter stood up there and said that Judas's betrayal of Jesus and his subsequent death were fulfillments of Scripture. He said, in fact, they had to be fulfilled. Verse 20 um, specifically cites two Psalms that were fulfilled in Judas. And so you saw down there in verse 20, may his camp become desolate and let there be no one to dwell in it. A citation from Psalm 69, 25. And then let another take his office uh, from Psalm 109, 8. And Peter's pointing out that God has not been thrown off track by Judas's betrayal. You know, his, the, the progress of his plan was not slowed down or derailed or sidetracked in any way. But neither was God responsible for the evil deeds of Judas. Okay? So God didn't have to come up with a plan B. He didn't sort of have to adapt on the fly. Uh, but neither was he responsible for the evil deeds of Judas or Pilate or the Jewish leaders or anyone else. This is one of these things that will stretch your brain, one of the tensions in, uh, in Scripture, and we'll see it throughout the book of Acts. But, but God sovereignly governs over human affairs, even using the evil deeds of people to accomplish his own purpose. And yet he's not the author of their evil. He, he's, just, he's just moving along. It all works together for his good. Evil originates in the heart of men when they give in to temptation and are carried away by their own desires. They're responsible for their actions. That was true of Judas. He chose to act wickedly. And, uh, and as he did, he fulfilled the plan of God. I mentioned earlier, I have no doubt that there are people here in a waiting place right now, waiting on God with a prayer you've set before him where you just know you're asking what he wants you to ask. In other words, it just seems so clear that prayer is right in line with the heart of God. You're praying according to the will of God. It, it might be for a, uh, a, a marriage that is coming unraveled and, and you know God wants marriages to last till death do us part, right? You know God hates divorce. You know you're praying in accordance with God's will and yet things have gone, it seems, from bad to worse. And you're perplexed by what you're looking at there. 
and, and, and thinking the circumstances appear that what God wants to do, what God's plan is, has now been derailed by somebody's, maybe your own decisions, maybe somebody's around you. The point is, yes, that is the heart of God, but no, his plan has not been disrupted by it. We can rest, rest in the sovereign plan of God. He knows the end from the beginning and works all things together for his good. The third thing we see that they model here in their waiting is wise decision-making. Uh, Peter says that a fulfillment of Scripture, uh, as a fulfillment of Scripture, someone must take Judas's office. We just read that there. Look at, look at verses 20, 21 and 22 and what he says about making that decision about someone filling his office. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us a witness to his resurrection. So he states there two qualifications for the person who will fill that office. He says it must be a man, and it must have been a man who was with them since the very beginning when Jesus was baptized all the way through to the resurrection. Now, we actually, we, don't, we aren't given any background as to why those are the criteria. Um, we don't know whether, whether Peter was somehow, uh, uh, you know, since he was led by the Holy Spirit in that direction, we don't know whether in their time of prayer they had talked about this um, and, and come to these conclusions. We really don't know where that comes from. We do, we, do, we do know there's no place in the Bible where you can turn to find out what do we do when one of the Messiah's um, disciples betrays him and then commits suicide. There, there's no handbook for that. So they are applying wise principles or principles of revealed truth to a specific situation here. So two men are brought forward as possible replacements for Judas. And then they cast lots to determine which one will fill his office. Now, if you're not familiar with that phrase, casting lots, let me mention just uh, a couple of things about that very briefly. It's a little bit like rolling dice. Okay, so they might have stones, some small stones or sticks of some sort with symbols on them um, that they would toss out and then interpret kind of the way they fell based on what symbols they had put on them, based on whatever it is, whatever decision they were making. But they would pray and ask that God would use that process to sovereignly reveal his will. And this was a common uh, method in the Old Testament for discerning the will of God. It's actually only mentioned twice in the New Testament, one of which was when soldiers cast lots for Jesus' garment. Um, and then the second and last time the casting of lots is mentioned is here in Acts chapter 1. And, and some have pointed out that after this, uh, the Holy Spirit was pour, poured out and um, the Holy Spirit provided guidance and decision-making and so forth, and so there was no more casting lots. Whether there was a cause and effect relationship there, again, we don't know. We do know this was the last time um, that it's mentioned. We also know, though, that they did not simply cast lots to make this decision entirely. 
And sometimes when you hear people talk about um, the replacement of Judas, how did they choose Judas' replacement? They say he, they cast lots. Well, that's only a small part of the story, isn't, isn't it? Are you, are you following here what, what we're actually reading? The lion's share of this decision was made before they ever cast lots. We know there were approximately 120 people in the room, 11 of whom were apostles. That leaves somewhere around 110 if we're rounding. I won't make you do subtraction in your head this morning. Somewhere around 110 people in the room who were eligible, if you will, to fill the slots. And, and they could have said, Lord, we don't know who to choose. Everybody here loves Jesus, and we're just gonna, we're gonna cast lots and let you determine which one of these is gonna be the 12th apostle. But for reasons, again, that are not revealed in scripture, they understood they needed an apostle who would be a credible eyewitness to the whole life and ministry and death and resurrection of Jesus. And they applied this criteria. Out of 110 people, they brought forth two. Two what appear to be equally qualified candidates. And then they cast lots between them. Now, uh, they could have cast lots, by the way, to decide among 110, and God could have sovereignly used that process to pick Matthias uh, to be the one to replace him if he wanted to do that. But, but the point that I want to draw out here this morning is that they simply um, engaged in wise decision-making while they're waiting. So a couple of things we might observe about that, uh, one being that making decisions like that, um, among other things, are, are an act of faith. So we are, they were preparing for God to do what he said he was going to do. You tracking there? So you're going to receive power. You're going to be witnesses. Peter says, hey, we need another witness. We lost one. We need to go ahead and pick the other one because the Holy Spirit's coming any day now. They're putting their money where their mouth is, so to, so to speak, making, uh, making decisions, making preparations because they believe God's going to do uh, what, he's, what he said he would do. But the other thing is that wise decision-making is not contrary to dependence on God or being led by the Spirit. They, they had a way of just leaving it entirely up to God, right? Just, just cast the lots. But they applied some wisdom to the decision, and that is not contrary to being led by the Spirit. In fact, I would say that to claim to be leaving in God's hands what he has placed in your hands to do is not a sign of spiritual maturity. It's disobedience. To claim to be leaving in God's hands what he has placed in your hands to do is not spiritual. It's just disobedient. Think about the example of um, Joshua in the book of Joshua. All through the opening books of the Old Testament, God says he's, he's promised to give the people of Israel a land, right? I will give you the land. This is the land I will give you. I have given you the land. This is the land I have given you. 
And then when the hour comes, what does he say to Joshua? Take the land. Oh, wait, what? what do you mean take the land? I thought you said you were giving it to me. Yep, I've given it to you. Now take it. You see, for, for Joshua, or for the people of Israel to say, you know what? We're just going to let God do this. If God wants us to have the land, he'll give us the land. That would be disobedient. He says, I have given you the land. Now take it. To claim to be leaving in God's hands what he has placed in your hands to do is not spiritual at all. It's disobedient. To make decisions wisely based on what he's revealed in Scripture is not unspiritual. And and I'm saying this because I know I'm speaking to a spirit-filled congregation. We we tend to uh, tilt in that direction. If we're going to err, we're going to err in that direction. There are other people err in the direction of don't even ask the Holy Spirit. We don't really care. We got a plan. We'll take care of it. But I have seen the Holy Spirit get blamed for a lot of poor planning and lazy thinking and careless decision making. Well, I'm just going to leave it up to God. Okay, don't blame God. <laughs> don't blame God for that. Waiting on the Lord doesn't exclude the need for or justification for wise decision making when he's given us the information uh, and the capacity to make that, and that's appropriate to do. In fact, the exercise, as I said, of wisdom while we wait is a demonstration um, of our faith that we believe God will do the thing that he's promised to do. So um, again, I, I don't know where, where you are this morning in this regard, but there are um, dozens of people, I have no doubt in my mind, dozens of people who are, who are waiting. Waiting and perplexed by why you're still waiting. Perplexed at why things seem to have gone from bad to worse. As I said before, they're going the wrong direction. Like you prayed and it seemed to, to have gotten worse, not better. And what do you do in that hour? Well, you wait expectantly because God is faithful. He can't be otherwise. He can't fail to do what he's, what he's promised to do. But you can pray. You can pray continually. You can ask others to join you in that season of prayer, to be united with you in asking God to move Again, he may move the circumstances or he may move you, but movement is a good thing. You can pray continually in unity. You can rest in his sovereign plan. And you can can act wisely in the meantime. You can make decisions he's given you the capacity to do. You know, for instance, regardless of what you're waiting on, if if he has... Uh, bless you with a marriage, there are certain things, certain responsibilities that come with being a husband or wife. Um, so, you, you know, in other words, you don't, have to, you don't have to ask, God, do you still want me to be a responsible husband? Yep, <laughs> he does. Do you still want me to take care of my family? Yes, he does. 
et cetera, et cetera. You, you can just continue to make wise decisions to steward um, the responsibilities he's given you, the opportunities he's given you, the resources he's given you, and so forth, uh, while you wait for him. We don't know how long that season of waiting will be. I certainly can't tell you what God's will is in your particular matter, especially because I don't even know what your particular matter is. What I do know is he can be trusted. He's the reason we can wait um, expectantly and uh, the reason that we can um, expect to see a move in power. Let's pray together as we close. Lord, <clears throat> we, we do thank you for your faithfulness. We thank you, Lord, that um, you always uh, do what you promise to do. Lord, would you just align our hearts with yours? I know there are people sitting here today who are watching part of their life come unraveled. It's, it's slipping through their fingers. The, 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 the cracks in the foundation are widening and spreading and they, they're just watching it happen and can't stop it. And they are unnerved by that fact. Lord, we thank you for the reminder you're not unnerved by it. You're not undone or surprised. Your plan is not derailed. And that those who call upon you and wait upon you can rest in that very fact. Lord, would you just press in um, apply this truth to individuals in whatever way it needs to be applied. Make yourself known in a really personal way today as one on whom we can wait expectantly. We ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen.